a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Hello and welcome everyone to a new episode of Force Ghost Coast to Coast Multiversity Comics Star Wars Podcast. My name is Alice W. Castle and I'll be your host bringing you all the good stuff from a galaxy far, far away. And today I am joined by my co-host, my Chewbacca, to my hand solo, Brian Salvatore. How are you doing? I would bet I'm taller than you. And I'm probably, probably yeah. And I'm, pro- and, I'm, and I'm definitely hairier than you. So sure, that works. I just hope I didn't meet you in, you know, a dank and muddy pit where you tried to kill me. I met you at New York Comic Con, which isn't that different from a dank and muddy pit, so... That is fair. Um, But yeah, how are you doing, Brian? I'm alright, how are you, Alice? I'm doing very well, because today, at long last, um, we're going to be talking about Solo, a Star Wars story. Because we've both seen it, and I think at this point everyone should have seen it. Um, Unless your name is Vince Ostrowski, you'll have seen it. He hasn't seen it yet? He still hasn't seen Infinity War. What is that boy doing? That's what I say to him all the time. Gosh. But yes, so we'll be talking all things Sola Star Wars story in this episode. So if you haven't seen it, major spoiler warning for pretty much the entire film. Um, yeah, there's going to be some, some major spoiler talk. So if you haven't seen it, go see it and then come back to this episode. Yes, good advice. So we've talked, well, I've talked, I I don't want to speak for you, but I've talked a lot about how I had no idea what my reaction to this film would be other than the fact that that I could barely believe that it finally came together. Even as I was sitting down and like the lights dimmed in the theater and the Lucasfilm logo came up, I was like, this is a real film that I'm about to see. I can't actually believe that this is happening. Um, I love this movie. I, I was not expecting a movie like this to really kind of uh i guess tug at my heartstrings the way it did and kind of uh kind of capture that star wars love um what did you think about it solo well i i, I just want to start off by sharing your general disbelief that it was a thing both yeah both conceptually and then coming through the uh the sort of you know shit storm of changing directors and all that the fact that it got made at all is miraculous I think this is a good Star Wars movie. I, 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 I would not put it among my favorite Star Wars movies because it doesn't have some of the elements that are that are the parts of Star Wars that I personally relate to the most. Um, sure, sure. But, you know, with very, very few exceptions, I enjoyed my entire time in the theater both times I saw it. I uh, There were some nice surprises. There were some... Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some really, really good moments. I, you know, again, I, I do have my quibbles with it, but not, not in a major way. To me, this, if this is what a what a twenty, what a Disney era Star Wars movie looks like with problems, then we're in good shape sure. for Star Wars movies. Yeah, I I, I would agree because yeah, like. It's not a perfect movie. I, I will not try and defend that the way that I kind of jokingly try and defend The Last Jedi as a perfect 10 out of 10. Um, yeah, even even I have my problems with it. But I, I think I was just so glad that it wasn't a 
Justice League style hot mess where you can tell from scene to scene what's reshoot, what's not, that I was so impressed with that first time around that I, I ended up really enjoying it more than I expected it to. And then I subsequently saw it two more times and found myself genuinely enjoying it more and more for what it was trying to be and, and like its place in, I guess, the new Star Wars canon. we got to stop calling it the new canon at some point. Um, it's, it's just the canon, just, right? It's just canon. Yeah. Um, but like where, where it's kind of situated in that almost direct middle ground between Revenge of the Sith and New Hope. Um, yeah, I, I just found myself had really they, enjoying had they it. clarified exactly when it takes place? I believe it is... Um, it starts off the, the prior to the three-year skip. It is... Um, 13 years before A New Hope. So I think, what, the five years after Revenge of the Sith, if my math on that is correct. Um, and then after the three-year skip, it's like almost directly, it's like uh, uh, 10 years before A New Hope, I think. See, that that doesn't track with me. I mean, I, I believe you. I don't think you're incorrect. But are we supposed to believe in A New Hope that Han is almost thirty like years, no, thirty I, years older than Luke. Because think of it uh, this way: think of it this way, right? If if the time skip is puts you seven years or puts you ten years before A New Hope, then Han is what seventeen in, before the time jump, so he's twenty. At, sure, at A New Hope, but Luke is. Like that, because that would mean that he's seventeen, that he's born seventeen years before Luke is born, right? Sure. Wait, I'm I'm fucking up my own math here. I'm sorry. I haven't had my coffee yet. Like, um, no, he should. It, be... it, it's trying to count backwards from right. Yeah. Uh, so if Luke on... is eighteen in A New Hope, then he's eight at the time of Solo. Then he's five at the time of. I, I believe he's nineteen. Nineteen. Okay. I, I think that. I think it's 19 years between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. <clears throat> okay, so let's say that if Solo takes place 10 years before A New Hope, the time jump happens, so Luke is 6 when Han is already... I guess that does make sense. Okay, sorry. I'm just doing the math in my head here. Um, yeah, it's 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 the fact that like all dates in Star Wars is basically around counting backwards or forwards from the Battle, <laughs> Battle of Yavin. Yavin. Yeah, exactly. And I'm terrible at... Uh, um, Mental, mental arithmetic. So am um, I, as you can just tell. So, <laughs> uh, according according to Wikipedia, which like I, I more or less trust, yes. uh, it says Anne is canonically born thirty two years before the Battle of Yavin. Okay, okay. Which I, I guess that tracks. He is definitely meant to be older than Luke, but I I, I don't think I was expecting quite that much older. He calls him kid a lot. He does. <laughs> All right. So, let's, yes, uh, so uh, avoiding each issue, let, yes. let's get to the heart of the matter. What did you think about Alden Ehrenreich's Han Solo? Okay. Um, I think he did about as good of a job as he could have possibly done balancing the line between creating a, a character that is his while still trying to remain somewhat true to the character that Harrison Ford 
created himself. He mm-hmm. was not doing a Harrison Ford impression, thank goodness. No. Um, yes. Especially, Although there there were a couple of moments where he he nailed certain deliveries almost exactly like like he got the Han Soloisms in certain parts. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And I think from a body language standpoint, he did a pretty good job too. Of yeah. just of just sort of inhabiting that body. What's going to be hard about this is because there's only supposed to be ten years between now and between the end of Solo and A New Hope. Any sequel is going to have to be like made in the next year or two, because yeah. once he gets a little bit older, that math's going to get real fuzzy, <laughs> you know. Um, yep. But talking about just his performance in the film, I think he did a a really admirable job. I I have some problems with a little bit of his dialogue early in the film, but that's nothing mm-hmm. to do with his performance. I think he did about as well as you could expect. Um, you know, again, there are a couple of things about what he was made to do that I don't necessarily agree with, but none of that is is his fault. Uh, what did you think sure. of his performance? Um, I surprisingly enjoyed that. I, I think I enjoyed it a lot more. I think we talked last time where I was really surprised at when they showed the clip from the, the Kessel run bit where Chewie takes over as co-pilot, mm-hmm. which... In retrospect, I'm really surprised that they just officially showed that because that's the first time they sit down together in the Falcon, yes. and it's really near the end of the film. Um, but yeah, like there there was times where he just hit certain handisms, uh, especially towards the end of the film, that I, I really just got caught up in forgetting that this is Alden Ehrenreich playing Han Solo, but ten years before Harrison Ford played Han Solo. I just saw Han Solo. Like, there are, yeah, a couple of times where the immersion broke a little bit. I think the one that stands out to me is when they're meeting Dryden Voss. He's like, like, towards the end of that meeting, they're talking about getting the ship. And he's like, oh, you just have to get the ship. We've already got the pilot. And he has this really smug grin and just points to himself. Yeah. And I get that he's meant to be cocky in an idealistic way. But I was just kind of like, that's a bit hammy. For Han Solo, and in a way that didn't feel quite right in the moment, but yeah, like I'm much the same. Where I think everyone went into, or at least addressed his uh, casting with like a hopefully healthy dose of skepticism, but uh, I, I was pretty impressed with what he managed to pull off, and I, I hope that I hope that if they do end up doing a sequel, which I mean, based on money and box office nonsense, who knows how that will turn out, but uh, I hope he at least gets a chance to to revisit the character and kind of basically, like, if this is bridging the gap between Han Solo as literally a child in Corellia, well, child, young adult on Corellia, to where we see him in, uh, in A New Hope, that he gets a chance to kind of bridge the end of Solo towards A New Hope even more, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, before we get into plot uh, machinations, let's just talk a little bit about some of the other cast. I don't think this is going to surprise anybody that Donald Glover was amazing. No, I was... So I, I knew he was going to be good. I was blown away just how much effort he put into capturing Lando Calrissian. He sounds almost exactly like Billy Dee in certain scenes. It's... 
actually spooky. I actually thought the first scene, you hear him before you see him. And I thought they got Billy Dee Williams to come in and just do a little bit of voiceover just to sort of yeah. give a clue. But no, no, that's that's how he sounds in the movie. And and, and that comes and goes a little bit. The sort of, yeah. uh, there, there's not a real consistency to the, to him doing the pitch perfect Billy Dee, but he really embodied that character. That scene where they find like the the parking clamp on uh, on the Falcon yes. is like chef Italian chef kiss perfect. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it, it was, is. Oh, it's so good. Um, I I think if if anyone at least to me is the weakest link in the cast, it's um, Amelia Clark's Kira. Not because of Amelia Clark, but because for most of the film. She like the writing. She's just kind of there to have for for. She's basically Tan's motivation for ninety yes. percent of the movie. Yes, and that that's kind of the personality we get from her. Uh, especially kind of in the the opening scenes, is she's just there for Han to to want to go back to Corellia, and I'm, I'm glad that by the time we get to kind of Kessel and afterwards, she does kind of go into her own, and I'd like to see like. As much as I'd like to see uh, Aaron Rick come back to Solo and kind of get another swing at it to to develop what he he uh, kind of created here, I want to see her develop the character even more uh, if they get another swing at it. Yeah, uh, I think one of the interesting things about her character is because she's so guarded, you really don't know at any moment where her head really is. Even mm-hmm. the end of the film, which we'll get to in a bit, where, where it seems like she's making a pretty deliberate choice in one direction, it still yeah. doesn't se- doesn't seem wholehearted. You know, I, I think it's actually it, it's it's what um, uh, Beckett says about her that she's a survivor. You know, she's somebody yeah. who will do whatever it is, whatever it takes to survive. And I think that you know that, that I, I'm with you. I want to see more of that. I also thought that Woody Harrelson did a nice job. I almost said Woody Allen, which would be a very good <laughs> performance. But God, no. <laughs> Woody Harrelson, I think, did a good job as Beckett. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a sucker for Woody Harrelson and pretty much everything he's in. So am I. Um, but I, I think what I was most impressed about was I, at no point did I think I was just watching Woody Harrelson in a Star Wars film. He, he actually uh, managed to, like, well, I, I guess that's a kind of backhanded compliment to a, char- uh, a character actor to be like, yeah, I, I didn't think I was watching you, but um, <laughs> but he's, it, he's, like, he's a stronger he's a stronger acting personality than often Star Wars casts. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good way of almost like Benicio it. del Toro. Like, yeah, like yeah. Those character those actors are more uh, they have more of their own sort of style and aura than some of the other actors do mm-hmm. which is I think something that uh, my girlfriend was talking about before we going to see the film like she was also very apprehensive about going into the film because like a lot of the other films you could get one or two kind of big names as like a side character almost mm-hmm. like um, basically getting like a, a Peter Cushing and A New Hope but he shows up for a couple scenes um, that it felt like, yeah, Samuel Jackson's a, a more uh, more relevant shout there actually. <laughs> um, but like, there, the, it felt like there were more 
characters in the kind of uh, main cast that were well known. Like Amelia Clark is just the Game of Thrones lady to a lot of people, um, and it, it, like I was worried about, or at least she was worried about how that would uh, blend into a Star Wars setting. I think most of them did a pretty good job, um, especially Paul Bettany, who I I, I remember talking about. Last time, I wasn't sure about how that would go, especially with the news that uh, he's basically been brought in to replace uh, Michael K. Williams after scheduling stuff with the reshoots. I think he was actually pretty good. I, I liked his really affable, uh, not quite a villain. Like He's obviously, in their way, he is an antagonist, but he's not out to get them as many Star Wars villains are. Yeah, I agree with that. I thought it was... Um... I mean, you kind of you kind of can't. When you know a character's been recast, it's hard to not imagine the yeah. original version of it, you know. Um, but I thought he did a really good job. I thought he was. Um, I, I think that the film did a nice job of showing how, on a hair trigger, his his temper can be, but while also showing him to be very sort of smart and calculating. And so you both. You're both trying to figure out what he's going to do, but you recognize you may never be able to figure it out. Does that make sense? Like, you know, it, it was yeah. just a. Uh, I thought he was a. More, they did. He was more complex than he had any right to be with the amount of screen time he got. Mm-hmm. He he felt like the kind of character who he always knows that he's in control of a situation, so he, he he's comfortable in that control. Like I, I I just love the the bit towards the end where he's just eating what basically look like space oysters. Yep. Well, doing this massive deal because he he just knows he's going to get his way, or at least that's that's uh, his hubris at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, which I, I I really enjoyed. He 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 was a really nice presence. Uh, where everyone like this is a film where everyone's basically acting in their own self interests. Yeah. But he's the guy that admits that he's doing it. Oh, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Like everyone, everyone's screwing over someone, but like Beckett's trying to to get out of this life and pursue some noble goal. Hans trying to kind of flip flop between trying to be a good person and trying to to make a name for himself. At half the time, you don't really know what Kira's actually acting on, but Beckett, uh, uh, Dryden Voss is just like, yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna get my way. Like I, I don't care about what you want; I care about what I want. And uh, I, I quite like that. It's very un-Star Wars in certain ways, but uh, it kind of uh, cues into that scum and villainy side of things. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, but well, I, I want to just kind of finish out the cast first. Um, I am... Uh, one of the parts of the film that I thought was a little bit overdone was the uh, John Favreau character. Yep. Uh, you know, <laughs> just... Uh, What's his name? Um, I should know that. Rio, I think. Yes, Rio, thank you. Uh, Just, you know, a walking cliche machine. uh, Just giving you, you know, every sort of, you know, don't die alone. uh, You know, just, it was, I understand why Star Wars films think they need things spelled out more than maybe some other films because there are so many kids that go see those movies and so maybe you feel like mm-hmm. you need to have a little more exposition than is necessary but I thought his character was was, was pretty much a waste. Um, 
Yeah. I, I like I think it was more of a disappointment in that he is basically there for those kind of moments of comedy and the transition from the Imperial Army stuff into Beckett's crew. Um and he just kind of goes away. Whereas I was really interested in the stuff with Beckett and Tandy Newton's Val, who just kind of shows up and then dies really unceremoniously. Yeah. In a way that I, I was I was really disappointed with how they handled that. Um, I like, wonder I get if that, those characters had more of a part in the original script. I would imagine so because the I like I don't know if it was like seeing it on a a second viewing. I almost wondered if it was like they they wanted to try and isolate isolate Beckett after this horribly gone wrong job in order to make him basically rely on Han and Chewie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also meant that they were introducing characters to do scenes later, kill them off. And one of them I'm kind of fine with because I feel like it didn't contribute much. And the other one I really wish we'd gotten to see more of. So it's this weird kind of a back and forth there, which was, yeah, I guess, but it's, it's always Star Wars. So I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if they get their own spin off novel or, or something like oh, that. I'm sure they will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any other cast members you want to talk about? Um, about I think the only one bit? that, yeah, I think L3 is the, the only one that kind of jumps out. Uh, what did you think about L3? So I, I'm I'm sort of of two minds about L three. First of all, I think it's hard in a post Rogue One world to look at any sassy droid and not just think K two S O. Yeah. Uh, so so there's that. I also think, and I, I I'm, I'm gonna give credit here. Have you ever listened to the podcast Story in Star Wars? Um, I have not. No. It's a podcast. It's done by this guy Alistair Stevens, and he um. He's he's sort of obsessed with structure and with um, sure like the way that stories are put together and so his podcasts are are, are very much about um, first act business and sort of the, do the acts work and all that but he pointed out something that I, I kind of was watching and I, I I I noticed it a little bit but when he said it it totally put it into perspective for me and he said that basically Solo takes you on like a thirty five year journey of cinema of cinema how it begins mm-hmm. with a war film. And then it goes to like a Dirty Dozen type film, and then it becomes a heist, and then it becomes a black exploitation movie for a little while, and then mm-hmm. it, and, and whatever. And so when I was watching L three, I was like, this reminds me of like an exploitation movie, and um, I, I'm I'm cool with that. I, I think it's it's good to have. Yeah, I, I think Star Wars can be many genres in one. I think Star Wars is not a genre, and that's a good thing. I like yeah. that there can be different things. Um, I think Star Wars actually works best when it's a lot of genres kind of thrown together and you're getting those different um, kind of iconographies playing off of each other. Absolutely. And so in that sense, I liked L3. I felt like with a lot of this film, it's funny because I feel like uh, it's not a short film, but I felt like a lot of characters got really... They had to do a lot in just a couple of scenes. And I think yeah. I would have dealt with. I think I would have enjoyed L three more if there was more, if there was less of L three in the four or five scenes she was in, but more scenes throughout the movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I hear you there. Um, it, it's one of the downsides of having to introduce Lando like halfway through the film. Right, is that both of their scenes are so condensed, and then 
uh, again, spoiler alert, um, the the fact that she gets, what, four or five scenes before her untimely demise. Mm -hmm. And again, I get why I get why they wanted to do that and I get what they wanted to do in terms of kind of tying her into basically being one of the personalities of the Falcon. My problem is, like, going back to K2, like, you also can't really have uh, a noble droid sacrifice without thinking about K2. Yeah. And I, I felt, is it felt, like, I felt very, like, a very similar beat. Uh, and I, I just kind of wish that, even if they wanted to kind of keep the, the tragedy of losing L3 and her having to be like basically become the falcon she's why the falcon like is a personality i wish it'd been more of a uh uh what's the word like like she'd decided it basically like uh maybe she got off of castle kind of lost a leg maybe something but then she was the one that was like you have to put me in the falcon as opposed to kind of just killing her off and then ripping her apart for parts to get right. the falcon out of a jam like yeah. for taking a, a film where her whole thing is about droid rights and then unceremoniously killing her off and then just stripping her for parts almost immediately kind of left a bad taste in my mouth but again i get like story wise why they wanted to have that beat um i just wish that yeah i wish we'd got more of her throughout and i wish that she'd had a, a bigger kind of ending moment if you know what i mean like yes I, I felt like a kind of flat note for her just to die and then become the falcon now but, what's, what's yeah. really interesting and i'm not going to say too much about this because you haven't read it yet but okay. L, l3 plays a relatively major role in last shot the novel sure um but it's it's very unclear as to as to if it's like I, before I read, so before I saw Solo, I thought I knew L3's kind of character arc because of that novel. Now I'm not okay. so sure, and I wonder if if there are other L3s that Lando, like if that becomes like you know if that's his droid model of choice, because he calls other sure, droids L3 in that. That's very strange, because uh, what I'd read, and uh, it's not something that they go into in the film, but what I'd read is that apparently L3 had put herself together from Droid Parts, like she basically made herself. Right, yes. Um, Which makes that even more interesting. Yeah, I, I kind of want to go back, I just finished the book like two weeks ago, right, right before Solo came out, but I kind of want to go back and reread those parts with L3, because it really is... It's quite different than the L three that we that we see meet her demise at the end of Solo or or midway through Solo. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's of, of interest to me. Uh, I'll I'll try and report back on that for next episode. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, now, do we want to just kind of talk about favorite parts, least favorite parts? Go through the plot direct. How do you want to do this? Um. I'm good with kind of kind of uh, favorite kind of moments. Um, maybe some kind of uh, bits that stuck out to us. Because uh, right. I I feel like this is a slight enough film that breaking it down plot point by plot point isn't super conducive. But um, 
I, I think uh, what, one, one thing that really stands out to me about this film that I, I want to give props to is just how good it looks. Um, the cinematography of this film is stunning. Um, it was Bradford Young, I believe, was the director of photography, mm-hmm. who shot films like Arrival um, and the uh, um, Selma, the Martin Luther King Jr. film uh, that Ava DuVernay directed. And he brings some work to this film. The lighting throughout is gorgeous. Um, like moments that stand out to me are the the lighting in the like undercity almost of Corellia, especially the harsh blue lighting of uh, Lady Proxima's like hive, mm-hmm. I guess. And I've seen people complain um, about that, and people are stupid. Yes, I've also seen people complain about that, but I've also seen reports that um, theaters. I've I've seen reports in America. I don't know where else, but theaters in America who aren't calibrated properly to screen that and and how it should be, and so it is. It's not just like people are complaining because it's dark. It's complaining because they're not realizing that they should be seeing it differently um, because the projections okay. wonky. Um, it's it's something worth reading up because uh, I, I yeah. I, at first I was like, how can people say this film's ugly? Then the reports came out. I was like. Yeah, no, it's being projected wrong and people can't see stuff that's happening that they should be able to see, which is disappointing, but yes. uh, I, I hope that's something that gets fixed. Um, what else was there? Um, I, I loved the the like extra, the like hyper long shots on the snow planet. Basically, like it, it was the kind of like, you got a tiny bit at the bottom that was the landscape with figures and then just a massive sky and mountains towards that background. It felt very unique for a Star Wars film to look like that, and uh, I think that was part of why I was so taken with it um, on my initial screening, was just seeing this uh, new corner of uh, Star Wars in a very, very different way. Yeah, I, I, I want to point to one particular thing that I feel like for a good chunk of the moving going audience maybe wasn't a big deal, but for folks like you and me, a, a very big deal, and that's that we got to see Sabak played on screen. Yes, uh, that's which a, is like, if you've I, been I don't reading know about Star you, Wars novels felt... <laughs> for as long as we have. Like that's a really big deal. Yeah, um, it felt very different from how I was expecting it to be. Because if I remember correctly, didn't Sabak have something to do with like holographic cards? I I'm not, I don't remember. Maybe. Am I imagining that? I, I I always remember someone telling me about how it was holographic cards and one of the ways that Hanshi like this is obviously in expanded universe stuff, but was able to like shift what cards he has in his hand, um, and basically like uh uh like what ha- like Lando does with the the card up his sleeves, but being able to manipulate the the hollow readers to to get cards that he shouldn't be able to get um but yeah no it, it was such a such a really cool kind of moment to actually get that um initial meeting played out as just like a, a back and forth over sabak and then the the slight west of like this isn't the sabak game you think it is mm-hmm. it was really nice yeah that was fun and uh yeah um can I talk about uh, something that I, I didn't particularly care about the film? 
Yeah, of course. So I, I feel like the first uh, half hour or so of the film, maybe even a little bit more than that, was really heavy on um, exposition that didn't need to be there at all. Sure. Like uh, the line in particular that that is, I think, it's just a good avatar of this is when Han says, uh, "You know, I was thrown out of the academy for having a mind of my own." Like mm-hmm. you should never have to say that. You can yeah. say he was thrown out of the academy, but you know who Han Solo is. And if you even just by watching the first ten minutes of the film, if you're not particularly familiar with the character, I feel like you can see that he's not a good soldier. Right, so yeah, it makes having to say that just felt like, ugh, this is a little bit too exposition heavy. And there were a couple of moments like that too, even with um, the scene around the campfire with mm-hmm. Beckett's crew. There was there was some stuff that I just felt was was a little bit too um, on the nose. Yeah, on the, exactly, yeah. just too on the nose dialogue lines. And I was that had me a bit worried about the film. But once you get past, like once you meet Dryden Voss. Mm-hmm. Almost all of that goes away. Uh, yeah, because it, it becomes less about what has been happening as you're introducing characters and introducing situations and more about what they're going to do. So you start to get to see them through actions a bit more. I I, I, I do think uh, the the one time they get away with it is when Kira's trying to like um, introduce Lando in the most, the most extravagant way possible. Mm-hmm. I, I like it is all very on the nose exposition, but it, it's played in such a way that I think she's trying to like rile up Han, which yes. uh, I did like. It it's all it also somewhat resembles the way Maz Kanata talks about the Master Codebreaker. Yeah, that is true. Um, which obviously this was in production while that was in production, so it's not like it's a, yeah. uh, a direct reference. But I just thought it was an interesting little parallel there. I think the thing that gets me about the going back to that line about being kicked out of the academy is, so far as I'm aware, because they made a big deal about it before the film came out. Um, there was a scene with uh, Tag and Bink. Mm-hmm. Yes. Excuse me. I don't. I don't know if you're aware of who Tag and Bink are. I, I am aware of them. I, I I do not have much experience with them, but I'm aware of who they are. They're a super weird, deep cut, expanded universe reference. Um, there, I th- I can't remember if it's their original comic or their uh, second comic, but one of their comics is called Tag and Bink Are Dead, as a reference to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, right. which is how weird uh, that kind of... Uh, it's basically making fun of... It's a, a through line of the Star Wars trilogy, kind of making fun of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, but so far as I'm aware, their scene was supposedly... Han being in the Imperial Academy and we'd get a scene of maybe the moment he gets kicked out or kind of uh, an example of him be, like not following orders and going on his own instincts, which I get why they cut because I actually really enjoyed the cut between the him signing up and being like, is this where I get to be a pilot? And the officer going to be like, yeah, sure, but most everyone ends up in the infantry and then hard cut to him being in the infantry right yeah like three years later he's in infantry things have gone wrong here and it's fine not to kind of to just let the dots connect there i uh, i get why they kind of want you to explain that cut but i think the that cut in and of itself was explanation enough maybe maybe that's just me yeah i agree i agree um yeah 
I think the movie really picks up once Lando is introduced, and part of that is just that Donald Glover is incredible, but part of that is also that it, the movie then finally has a real drive to it, and you, yeah. you know what the plot is, and you know what the goals are and all that. Um, I will say that it wasn't until my second time seeing the movie that I recognized just how much stuff is in Dryden Voss's quarters. Oh yeah, there is there so... is so much. There are so many little Easter eggs there. It's great. My favorite thing is the fact that I, I I kept looking stuff up to see whether or not it was actually there, but apparently that uh, big triangle is a holocron, yep. perhaps of the Sith variety. Yeah. Which, uh, given who he works for, actually makes sense. Yes, certainly. Uh, in retrospect, but my favorite is the giant crystal skull, which was a reference to Han Solo and I think it's the Lost Legacy. It's one the of cover the novels, to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of the the Brian Daly novels. I think it's the Brian Daly novels. Um that yeah, it's Lost Legacy that has a giant crystal skull. Um which is also a layered reference to Indiana Jones, yep. I think. <laughs> which is which is my favorite. And apparently the uh the fertility idol from Raiders is hiding in there somewhere, but I didn't get a good look at it. Which is awesome. It's like those are the moments where, like, I feel like um, one of the reasons why Canto Bite had such a negative reaction to it was I feel like that was such a part of the marketing for Last Jedi was look at this cool casino planet we're going to, and then like yeah, what they go to attempt to do doesn't work out, and people go. Well, that was pointless. Whereas with Dryden Voss's office, it's the, here. Here's the scene with Dryden Voss, but also we've thrown all of this cool stuff in the background for you to just kind of look at. Which is like I think that's how they're kind of getting not getting away with it here, but like why, for as cool as Cantobite was, people kind of didn't gel with that scene. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely sure. makes sense. Um... Yeah, I, uh, let's see, what other things, there's one part about the, the ending I want to talk about, but before we get there, is there anything else sort of from the middle of the movie, the meat of the film you want to talk about? Um, just the fact that the Imperial Army stuff was amazing, and I wish we could have got, like, an entire movie of that, um, like, that's purely just because that's entirely my shit, um, but the the fact that this was our our first time seeing imperial imperial army troopers like in action in canon, um, was just the dopest shit and like just running through smoke and fog like looking like a real ass war movie mm-hmm. with at uh, I think they're ATSTs or they're they're a new variant the the chicken walkers yeah in the background I I was such a sucker for that um. I know no one else would have liked it, but a two-hour movie of just Han in some war zone in the backwoods of nowhere would have got my ticket price. <laughs> um, what did you think about the uh, the set piece with the train, the sort of the heist's gone wrong? Because I know there are people that have very strong opinions in both directions about that. I'm really surprised to hear that. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, uh, I thought it was a really unique way of taking uh i don't want to say cliche but that kind of cliched it's a train heist you know we've seen a million train heists in cinema but infusing it with 
Star Wars-iness. Um, I, I think it benefits from the fact that I, I really enjoyed Enfys Nest and uh, her crew, mm-hmm. the, the swoop bike uh, kind of deal. And I think for me, once they show up, it really kicks off and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm surprised to hear people didn't enjoy that, though. I've read a fair amount of people saying they felt that it was impossible to follow, which makes no sense to me. I felt it was really straightforward. Yeah, that I don't get at all. Um, That's very strange. And I've seen some people say that essentially... Like, you know, and this, this argument I can maybe understand. They said that the movie takes too long to get to what it should be. And that if you sure. int- you could introduce Beckett without any of that, and it doesn't change all that much of the uh, of the story. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think it was just a way of tying, like I said earlier, tying Beckett, who is pretty solidly in a crew, to Han and Shui, and then isolating Beckett in a way that he now needs to rely on them like going forward to kind of make it up to to Dryden. Mm-hmm. Like he he gives them that moment to walk away and they're like no we we I guess like we helped create this. We should help see it through. Mm-hmm. Um which is why I liked it. Um but yeah, I I don't get people said it was hard to follow. I think it was actually yeah, it was actually really straightforward at least for me. I think so too. Um I also think just sort of practically it gives the film another set piece. Yeah, because there's only you know two or three really big set pieces in the film. One of them happens in space. One of them happens um, on Kessel, and yeah. then one of them happens there. Those are really the big three uh, action sequences in the film. Because mm-hmm. even that, like Kessel and escaping Kessel, and excuse me, um, like to a lesser extent the Savarine stuff. And like basically getting into and then out of Castle is kind of one big set piece, right, like one right, big extended yeah. kind of like chunk of the movie. Um, so yeah, I, like having a kind of first act kind of part that's not like the Escape on Corellia, that's not the war movie stuff, but kind of transitions from this was Hans' backstory to this is the rest of the movie. Yeah, um, I liked. So, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I think it was a, a pretty well-done sequence. No, I, I, again, kind of think Sorry. the Beckett's crew was a little bit wasted, but that's, that's like, my only qualm with the, the set piece. Now, you have, you know, m- read much more of the sort of modern canon than I have, or I guess maybe I'm catching up. I've read a bunch lately. But uh, mm-hmm. and you've sort of watched Rebels and and all of Clone Wars and all of that. Yeah. Um, were any of the characters? I mean, obviously, we know about Maul. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But were any of the other uh, characters that popped up here characters that might be recognizable to folks who have seen who are more versed than I am in that sort of mid canon stuff? Honestly, none that I could recognize, which was surprising to me, I, I'll be sure. Um, the the only kind of references to the... Because obviously, like, I, it's one of those things where, like, because it's so directly in the middle between other stuff, it is a solid 
what, close to a decade away from Rebel and close to a decade away from Clone Wars, mm-hmm. um, that it, it does kind of... Like, you'd have to have uh, uh, characters away from where, where we know them initially for them to show up. Um, the the only real references to that that I can remember off the top of my head are Han's ship that he, he bargains with, or like a massive air quotes ship uh, that he, he pretends to have to bargain with. He says it's a VCX-100, mm-hmm. which is the class of ship that the ghost is, okay. which I, I really enjoyed. Um, and obviously... Uh, Lando and Beckett mentioning Aura Singh, who right. was uh, the the character that initially showed up. I think she first showed up in Phantom Menace during the pod race. Yes. Um, the kind of bald-ish, white-skinned bounty hunter with a big ponytail. Uh, she became a character more uh, in Clone Wars, mm-hmm. but which is, I, I really wish they hadn't. I, I hope that. Uh, Rumors of her death are highly exaggerated, okay. and that she, she like, because I really like Ara Singh, and it would make me sad that if they just kind of killed her off screen. Um, but other than that, yeah, the See, I wasn't sure if Infus Nest was, uh, or the Cloud Riders were something that you know were mentioned elsewhere. No, so the Cloud Riders as a concept, I believe, is taken from. One of the the super duper old like the original uh, Marvel Star Wars comic um, before Dark Horse got it, mm-hmm. um, but they were just like swoop bike uh, marauders. But Enfys Nest herself, I believe, is a brand new character. But I, I think the if we see her again, it will be to tie her into Saw Gerrera's partisans. Yes, I would agree because one of her her gangs is um what i think is two tubes from rebels um uh one of the the um god i can't even remember their species name uh tognath brothers uh, the guys with the weird kind of gas mask and uh-huh. mechanical yeah. tubes um I, I i don't know if it's just uh one of their species that shows up as part of her crew or it's specifically that character, but um, hopefully this is the kind of moment where we're seeing separate kind of uh, rebellion groups start to build power and connect with each other, because that's kind of what we see at the start of Rebels is that there's no there's no central movement. There's just cells and break off groups who are individually trying to to fight back against. Uh, the Empire, and that's kind of where Sagarera first kind of builds power. So maybe with her funding, she gets in touch with him. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I was I was surprised that how much was given to her backstory, given that she was a character I'd never seen before. Yeah, at, at least the way she's in the the way the helmet comes off and her kind of backstory, it feels like she's a character that we should know. But this is her first appearance, which was. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that sort of leads me to, to maybe my least favorite part of the film, um, which is that I understand that to make a Han Solo movie, you have to somewhat whitewash his scoundrelness. 
mm-hmm. because you want to make a movie that's enjoyable. You you, you want an enjoyable protagonist. Yeah, he still but, has to be the quote unquote hero. Right, but I felt like, especially with him giving the coaxium to Enfys Nest, that that was far too heroic of a move. Yeah, for the Han Solo that we meet in A New Hope. Now again, there's there's ten years of maybe shit he has to crawl through that gets him to be that more scoundrelly, out-for-himself character. But that that really didn't... To me, that part did not really track with the character that I know. Did that bother you, or am I just being overly sensitive to that? It does. So I wouldn't say bother. I, I do see where, where the complaint comes from, and especially because... If you look at if you look at the the movie kind of as a progression of Han's character, to me it's unsaid, but it's a movie about Han learning to shoot first. Yes, you know where where he is in the beginning. He he mentions, uh, "Next time someone hits me, I'm going to hit them back twice as hard." And from that moment, he loses so much progressively and kind of ends up backed into a corner more and more that he has to learn that he has to be the one to shoot first, which is where he ends up with Beckett. And I like that that was kind of their, their subtle lesson in the, the progression of the character, but no one ever actually said the words, you need first. to sh- first. Right. Yeah. Because um, that would be, that would be very on the nose. I like that it was just visually done. Um, and the fact that giving giving the Cloud Raiders the, the coaxium directly after kind of the, the culmination of that lesson is a kind of weird whiplash i, I kind of get why they were like well he still has to be the hero of the character but if he'd just like if instead of the scene being i'm giving you the coaxium because i'm a good guy he'd been like cool chewy take what we need leave the rest they'll find it and just left mm-hmm. that would have kind of helped people see that kind of like sure he he does want to help him as he said like he or at least as kira said like he's still the good guy, he just has to fight, he's trying to fight against that kind of reputation. Um, and, and I like the, because the, like, even in A New Hope, like everything he's doing is to someone's benefit. He's just pretending that he's really grouchy about it. Right. Um, or, or at least he, he he's always kind of complaining that he, he's been dragged along for some rides. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I get why people I, i'm kind of fine with it because again i'm hoping that we see a little bit more of this hand in between like the end of this movie and you hope to kind of drill that kind of uh hardening lesson in um kind of close him off a bit between uh now and a new hope but uh it's it's yeah I, mean, I, I it, wish it didn't ruin the film kind of or anything, film. you know. But, yeah. but it was. Uh, I felt that was a, a fair criticism. Um, I, it was. It was a, a certainly a weird kind of note to end that plotline on. Yes, I agree. Um, my other sort of last critique here is that I I want to see more Han and Lando stuff. Yeah, but I don't know if there's much more to see there. I kind of feel like they, they did a... They, whether purposely or not, kind of told all the Han and Lando stories that we're aware of in this film. Yeah. And uh, 
Because I think that if you wanted to make a, a second movie, there are sort of only two real ways to go. And the one is to make Lando a bigger part of it, and the other is to make it make to make Darth Maul a big part of it. Yeah. And I feel like they may not do the former because they've sort of told the Han and Lando stories already. Mm-hmm. I, I think if it is a downside where like they could very easily leave those characters where they are and then have basically audience pick them up at Empire Strikes Back and it's like you, you don't get the sense that they've seen each other since then. But they could also kind of like leave it and have him show up in a possible solo sequel and kind of continue that a little bit. But they also kind of have to end it in the same way where you always get that sense that it's been a while since they've seen each other. Right. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think it's just the, the like those little weird plot threads of like either we end setting up that they're going to meet each other in a sequel that's not Empire or we end not knowing how they'll come together and then because we know the next time that they meet each other is Empire. Right. Like that kind of weird nebulousness. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just the downside of how good Donald Glover is and how well they are, uh, they kind of balanced each other out. Yeah. That we just wanted to see more of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's something I said um, or tweeted like not long after um, seeing it is like, every individual aspect of the film like every like the Corellia stuff the stuff with the imperial army the stuff with beckett pre-dryden voss and then like the stuff with dryden uh with like beckett and lando and that are all individual like two-hour movies that i would watch in full <laughs> but obviously they all had to be in one movie right uh, so I feel like there there are two things we haven't really talked about, and one of them I think we can do relatively quickly, and one is going to take a little bit more. So let's do the relatively yeah. quickly for one first, and that's and that's Maul showing up. Yeah. Um, obviously, I I, I I marked out in the cinema. Oh, I'm sure. I actually thought you're the first person I thought of uh, when when that happened. Uh, the second being, I have a cousin who's gone as Darth Maul for Halloween like ten years running. So I thought, nice. he, I thought he'd be really really stoked about that too. Um, but the, uh, you know, I have seen Maul pop up once so far on Clone Wars, and I'm sure. a, I'm aware enough of sort of Star Wars canon and what's going on that I know that Maul is a major player, or a more major player in the coming Clone Wars and also in Rebels. So mm-hmm. I wasn't surprised in the oh he's alive kind of way. I'm yeah. surprised. I was surprised in the oh here's a movie. There- entirely devoid of the force who's bringing in this character wow that's that's very interesting um i had the same thought because like and 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 how he kind of shows up in each kind of iteration basically um and phantom menace and clone wars and rebels by the time you get to like like basically when he leaves you kind of get a sense that, like, oh, that's, like, the end of his story. Like, the, the you know, a fan of, fan of Menace, he gets cut in half. It's kind of a down note. Everyone kind of wanted him to come back. Clone Wars, by the time you get to the end of the season, you feel like they've capped off his story. And then all of a sudden he shows up in Rebels and you go, cool. And then they kind of cap off his story a little bit more. And so I'm like, this is the guy who won't go away. 
<laughs> at this point. Like he's the bad every time in I, the Star Wars universe. <laughs> like literally, like I, I'm super happy that he showed up, but it's one of those ones where I was like, holy shit, they can't get rid of this guy now that they've brought him back once. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I was thrilled to see him, and I think like th- this is like tinfoil hat moment, but I wonder if this is a moment where so Rogue One had a lot of ties to the the original trilogy in the films but solo doesn't have a lot of ties to any film either side of it other than like tangentially being related through a shared universe i wonder if this is lucasfilm being like hey did you know that there's like 10 series of animated series that you didn't see and shit like darth maul's back just in case there's like people who just casually go see a star wars movie and then went how the fuck is Darth Maul still alive? Why has he got robot legs? And then everyone around him can be like, yeah, did you, like, there's a whole cartoon that you need to watch here. Yeah, I, I, I sort of had the same thought where I think that there's a, I think that now more than ever, people want their bits of canon to connect, you know? Yeah. Like, and I know I, I'm, I'm speaking for both you and for my daughter and for myself too, but but that an Ahsoka movie would be something, Whoa, dude. something that would like that would be, you know, a crazy thing. But I feel I, like, I love it. But I feel like it, it's very hard to bring a character from animation to live action without it feeling clunky. Yeah. But if you make Maul that connected character, oh yeah. The fans the people who have seen the prequels already know who he is. And so it's not a matter of you can build like I think if they do a, a Crimson Dawn movie, or a movie that that is more involved in that, you can introduce mm-hmm. so many characters through that film, and it wouldn't feel like you're shoehorning characters in that don't belong there because Maul spans both both sort of uh, delivery systems of story. Yeah, you know, and so I, I I'm with you. I think this is very much an attempt to bring the animation world and the live action world together a bit. It's also like, I I think we're at the point where like, if you'd said to me like five years ago about an Ahsoka movie, I would be really, I wouldn't be sure about how that would work purely in terms of like performance. Like obviously Ashley Eckstein has voiced her in every appearance but I, I, I don't know if Ashley Eckstein is, like, a physical character for Ahsoka. Um, and obviously you have the fact that she's not a human character. She's Tegrutin. She has her contrails. She's all in orange skin. Like, it's trying to do that without it being hokey. Because, like, you can get away with Twi'leks and aliens in the background when they're not main characters and they're in makeup. They, they do look like Star Wars aliens. Right. But it's having the main character be that. And I think they kind of nailed it here where, surprising me, Ray Park is physically playing Maul in this scene. Yep. Um, and it looks like they, they've gotten back in makeup, but they've obviously used visual effects to kind of uh, enhance how he looks. Mm-hmm. Like, aside from the fact that he's a big hologram and has robot legs. Mm-hmm. But, like, in, in terms of, like, melding a physical actor in makeup with visual effects, with a dubbed voice being uh, Sam Whitwer, who voices him in the animated series, you've got this like layered character from different performances 
that all combines to one performance where you don't see the layers almost. Right. And I think we're at the point where we've got like Thanos and the Avengers movies and like the, the MCU's done really well with uh, CGI characters who don't feel hokey, if you know what I mean. Well, most of them. <laughs> but like Thanos and and like the, the actual CGI on Ultron and stuff like that, like they, they've gotten to the point where you're not seeing the seams as much as say Jar Jar. Um, right. I think we could get to the point where we're seeing animated series characters who aren't human, or even just like uh, uh, non-film characters who aren't human, come into the fore with this like layered performance, um, or at least I, I, I hope so because I think that would be be very cool. Yeah, so I definitely think that this is this is a moment to do that, and I think that if if the Disney streaming service gets off the ground when they want it to, I mm-hmm. think, I mean, unfortunately, how much, I mean, it would be an amazing tie-in if they could have got it together before, uh, before Star Wars, before Solo came out, rather, to say, yeah. like, hey, at the, like, literally after the credits, have a little commercial, like, you want to know more about Darth Maul? Go check out these series that we have on, uh, yeah. On you know on our streaming device or whatever our streaming platform mm-hmm. whatever um, I, I think yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if a show turns up on there with these kind of characters because like not not to spoil how Rebels ends but the the new show that they've announced Resistance I doubt if it will have any way of tying into some of the plot threads that were kind of left unanswered by the end of Rebels because there's like thirty years of a difference there. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we got a show there. And I, I have to wonder if uh, that's what John Favreau's live-action thing might deal with. Or, or at least in some form. I mean, the timeline for that would be really weird, though. Cause that oh, yeah, because that's, that's after set after that. Ender. Yeah. That, that might deal with... Yeah, it probably won't deal with Maul, but it might deal with... Uh, other other things that we can't talk about until you finish Rebels. Oh, okay. Um, See, I, I think that's going to talk. I think that's going to be the um, Ray Sloan series. Oh, I would, I would love it. I, I need Ray Sloan. I love her so much. I mean, doesn't that just make total sense with that timeline? It does, and basically, like, if it's if it's the story of like you you read the Aftermath trilogy, yes, right? Yes. Yeah. So if it's like after Aftermath, because it says it was after the Battle of Jakku, right? Yes, yes. So, like, her crew are, are out in the Unknown Reaches. And, like, if it's the story of how, uh, like, the Empire, like, her crew goes from, like, the remnants of the Empire to the, the First, First Order, Order yeah. building something new into, like, the transition of ideologies, I think that'd be really neat. Yeah, I, but yeah, I, I, I'm I'm super dope for super hyped for more mall. Yeah. All right. So the last thing I think we have to talk about is just Ron Howard's direction, and sort of how yeah. how that survived the fraught process that was the making of this movie. Um, I remember you saying that you don't really have a particular affinity for his direction. That there's not a Ron Howard film that you really love. Uh yeah, I like. God, I, I don't think there's even a Ron Howard movie that I've really seen. 
Um, like, looking at his filmography, like, I know of, like, his films, but I don't think I've actually sat down and watched anything that he's directed. Like, all the way through, at least. You should watch Apollo 13 sometime. Yeah, yeah, I've heard, that's the Tom Hanks, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I've heard that's good. It's amazing. It's, it makes me cry every single time. <laughs> and it's on TV all the time, <laughs> so a lot of my, my wife will come downstairs and be like, are you watching Apollo 13 again? And I'm wiping tears from my eyes. Like, <laughs> sure. No! <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely see Apollo 13. But, yeah, um, so what did you think of Ron Howard's direction? Um, I think, so... If I remember correctly, I think last time we kind of mentioned like we don't know how this how how this film was going to go in terms of like whether you could tell who shot what um, because there there was like varying numbers of how much Ron Howard actually reshot of what had been shot and what would make the final cut and whatnot. But I, I feel like like I was really impressed at how cohesive a film it felt like directorially. Um, and I think it helps with having like basically the rest of the crew, as far as I'm aware, um, survive the the transition. So like the look of the film and like what was going on in the background and the the sets and the CGI felt cohesive from shot to shot, and it was the kind of um, almost the overview. That, that was changing. Um, I think there was a couple times where I could see moments where I was like, I, I, I think the ones that stood out to me, like it, it happens twice in the movie and it felt like it was supposed to be maybe something much bigger in a, the, the previous version, or maybe this is something Ron Howard added, I don't know. But the, the extreme close-up on Han's eyes as he like, uh, it, it's first on Corellia as he like um, is driving like in the speeder chase and then happens just before he hits hyperspace like towards the end of the movie and they're just like little flashes of something that might have had more importance at a different cut mm-hmm. but yeah I, I was uh, impressed like it certainly I mentioned it earlier it's certainly not a Justice League level of like you can tell at what stage each <laughs> right. film yeah. each scene was shot um, and like it felt very like hacked up um, I don't think anyone's really clamoring for the the Lord and Miller cut. Hashtag um, release the Lord and Miller cut. Uh, at least I like I don't even know what that would look like because like it was on it was pretty much only raw footage they must have got like it was just the end of principal photography. Um, but yeah, I, I was really impressed with it. I, I think I, I I haven't seen what. Uh, Matt Mark Garcia has said about it, but I wouldn't be surprised if he he kind of because if I remember correctly, he he wasn't impressed with Ron Howard as a choice. He, he wasn't. And uh, I had to. I really wasn't either. But Matt really enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, because I, I know he's kind of a stickler for like directorial voice mm-hmm. in films, at least in these kind of uh, um, big films, and I don't think it felt necessarily like a. a uh, studio printed Star Wars film TM kind of stamp, right? But I also think he he was a nice middle ground with like feeling cohesive to a larger universe and kind of putting his own spin on it. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't quite as like as we said before, like something like Last Jedi is very much a Ryan Johnson film that's also Star Wars, whereas I I, I 
don't know if this is necessarily a Ron Howard film that's also Star Wars, but a Ron Howard Star Wars film. Yeah, I don't think Ron Howard has the sort of uh, trademarks of a Ryan Johnson or a tonal yeah. uh, consistency of a Ryan Johnson, which I, I think actually probably helped him adapt in this to this film so well, you know, because he didn't sure. have to do the five or six quote Ron Howard things. He could just make this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all right. So, so here's here's my most important question of the, of the episode, which is your new rankings of the Star Wars films. Oh God! Um... Because you said something on uh, on Twitter that this might be a top five Star Wars film for you. Potentially, that this this might break the Mount Rushmore. Um, so before this film, I still like. My caveat is that I am not usually a person that uh, like thinks about rankings for films, um, like other than perhaps Phantom Menace and uh, uh, Attack of the Clones. Like I love all of my Star Wars children equally. It depends on what <laughs> mood I'm in. Okay. Um, but if, if I were to rank it, I think I think I'd be looking at the Last Jedi is number one still. I, I think I'm still in that mode where. That that was such a, a an event, an emotional event for me that that's currently number one, um, which was uh, that, A New Hope, Empire, and then I think it's now Solo, Rogue One, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, Phantom Menace, Clone Wars. Did I miss one out? You forgot uh, Force Awakens. I forgot Force Awakens. Uh, Force Awakens is between Revenge of the Sith and Return of the Jedi. That's, okay. that's been knocked down by progressively more, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> as, as time separates me and it. And see, I find, the, I find that keeps rising in my rankings. Sure. So, so my current rankings are Empire, New Hope, The Last Jedi, The Force Awakens, Rogue One, Return of the Jedi, Solo, uh, Sith, Phantom, Clones. Sure, yeah. But, it's but, always in like the the back half that we agree. Yes, exactly. Um, although although you have solo much much higher than I do, but I, I'll say this: yeah. like I feel like um, obviously the prequels are are not my favorite, and uh, mm-hmm. I also I'm also aware that I I was in the exact wrong spot when the prequels came out, where I was I was too old to like the kitty stuff. But I was mm-hmm. too young to be able to appreciate it. I think I was in like I was seventeen. I was I wanted it to be my everything. And when yeah. the Phantom Menace wasn't, it really bummed me out. So I, I I think I'm just like genetically disposed to not like the prequels as much as maybe they deserve. At least Revenge of the Sith, I've come around on a little bit. Yeah, but I'm, I'm still not a huge huge fan of it. Um, I mean, same, I, I think I've always been like that. Like, I, I was young enough to, at the time, really like the prequels. But kind of, like, I, again, as time separates me and the release of the the prequels, I've grown up and been like, wait a minute, this doesn't quite, this doesn't feel right. Why, why did they do this? And, I, like, progressively as I revisited them, like, I, I cooled on them to the point where, like, you know, Attack of the Clones is pretty resoundingly my least favorite Star Wars film. Oh yeah, 
Um, and I, I think it's it's telling who puts Attack of the Clones in Force Awakens, uh, not Force Awakens, A Phantom Menace, like last and second last, pretty much. Whether you're the kind of person that won't get over the grudge of the Phantom Menace being as bad as it was, or won't get over the grudge of Attack of the Clones not learning from its mistakes. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, so what should we talk about next month? Any ideas yet? Um, I am not sure. So my my goal is uh, if I can wrap up some of the things I've been reading, because I, I basically found myself running a D&D campaign um, uh, through work friends, so I've been doing a lot of prep for that. Um, but I do have Phasma... Uh, the novel sitting on my bedside table ready to be read and I managed to nab myself a copy of Guardians of the Wills the Greg Rucka okay, yeah. uh, book about uh, Bays and Chirrut so hopefully I can bash through at least one of those or I've read both one of those, of those. So we, we can talk yeah. about that next time for sure um, I'd like to try and bash myself through there um, other than that I'm not sure because we have like basically a year and a half until the next <laughs> yeah the next big Star Wars thing, because I, I was under the impression that episode nine was next to me. It is next oh, no, December. It's, it's next December, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, um, I, I'm hoping by the next time we talk, I will either have finished the Clone Wars or be yeah. very close to the end of the Clone Wars. So that might be a good thing to talk about, too. Yeah, time. if we can do a big Clone Wars post-mortem, I'd be very excited. Cool. Be very excited to do that. Yeah, where mom, where are you at now? Are you still season four? I'm at the. I just finished the four part where um, where Obi Wan has his face changed into. Uh, oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, um the bounty hunter guy. Um, yes, yeah. God, I can't remember his I name. I wrote about this yesterday. I should know his name. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. Rico Hardin. Yes, Rico Hardin. That was yeah. it. Because my my brain was going to Morello Uval, but that's the that, the other that's guy. The other guy, yeah, exactly. But so, um, my daughter has now a strict I'll only watch Ahsoka episodes policy going on <laughs> in my house. So uh, I, I I agree with that. So I have to I, like I, I, I have to like look ahead and see which ones you can watch. I've been watching them. Like I I, I won't I won't separate episodes that are kind of tied together in an arc. But sure. I, but I I'm skipping all the non Ahsoka ones to. I watch those but by myself and then watch these local ones with her. So sure. um, so it's kind of changing the way I'm watching it. But I figure I should be done with um, with this as it either right when we record or right after we record. So I will, I will try to push I to think, get I it done. If, by the time we get to the next episode, if you've finished season five, uh-huh. at least, um, we could do a big postmortem about that because season six, what, well, what, like, the lost missions as it was put on Netflix is like basically what was finished and in the can for season six um by the time that they got cancelled. Mm-hmm. So it's it's half a season. There's a couple of great arcs in there, but it's a lot of like their early in production filler episodes, unfortunately. Um so a lot of people basically just think of the end of season five as like the finale for the show. Right. So if we get to there and you've seen a bit of episode six, I think a, a big kind of Clone Wars postmortem is in order. Would, does that mean that the last episode you watched might have been Crisis on Naboo? It was, yes. Yes. Uh, the next four episodes will be really interesting to you, given that what we talked about today regarding a certain character who showed up in Solo. Okay, cool. Cool. But this is the season finale that I was like hoping you'd get to. Okay. Um, 
like knowing you because it's it's some of my favorite stuff. Cool. I, I'm excited to check it out. And then my goal for the summer is, if I can finish this by sort of the end of June, early July, is to plow through Rebels before yeah. uh, Resistance starts. That would be awesome. So we'll see. Sounds like a plan. So, uh, yeah, I think that's that's an episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and any like kind of wrap up thoughts on Solo, or do you think we've uh, covered everything? I think we've covered it pretty well, but I'm 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 looking forward to seeing it hopefully one more time in theaters. Um, yeah, it's been since Revenge of the Sith that I haven't seen a Star Wars movie at least three times in the theaters. Yeah, um, I, I might be might be the same actually. Yeah, but yeah, I think we we got through pretty much most of everything we want to say about the solo. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, writing way too much at multiversitycomics.com, as well as on Twitter at Brian Needs a Nap. And you can find me on Twitter at Alice W. Castle. And, Welcome you know, back, by the wherever way. I... Oh, Welcome thank you. Uh, yeah, I, like, I just got very, very bored of everything going on there. I was like, I, I need to take a couple of weeks where I just do stuff that's not beyond Twitter. Mm-hmm. I, I, I understand that um, I am jealous. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I like when when I was doing uh, social media stuff for Multiversity, I, I had a couple times where I was just like, "Oh God, I, I got to keep Twitter because this is part of what I do for the site." Um, and now that I had the chance, I was like, "I could just delete for a week." <laughs> it was uh, very freeing. Cool. But yeah, um, we will be back next month with uh, more Star Wars content, obviously. Uh, be that talking about Clone Wars, be that talking about some of the novels. I hope to play through uh, Guardians of the Wills, especially because that's, that's been on my list that's a real for a read. while. Yeah, it, it seems it. Uh, I managed to get the hardcover and it's still fairly, fairly compact, which uh, I'm excited about. Um, but yeah, uh, may the force be with you. podcast listeners we're the hosts of the dc3 cast i'm zach i'm vince and i'm brian each week we discuss most of the new releases from dc comics focusing mainly on rebirth wildstorm and young animal we also look at the news of the week discuss the film and television adaptations of dc material and dig into industry rumors we've also had a number of dc creators on our show like scott snyder jim lee christopher priest steve orlando and joshua williamson so if you like borat jokes my wife bad to end dio impressions this is bad what the f- and an in-depth look at dc each week join us every wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice come get jurgens with us.